trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academic experts to help us better understand what's going on behind the news headlines. I'm Sananda Craig. That's one of the reasons, Alan, why I'm going to sack the board. Good. If I'm elected, the board will go. So I want a new broom okay. through. I know you've been on, on that, yeah, uh, on that Well, there's no doubt um, we, are, we are not perfect. We could, we could have done some things better than what, we, than what we hoped to, but, Alan, you can't deny the transformation of the state has been unprecedented. We are mere weeks away from an election in New South Wales on March 23, and it's shaping up to be a really interesting one, of course, for people who live in New South Wales but also for anyone interested to know which way the wind is blowing in the lead-up to the federal election in May. I spoke today to Dr Andy Marks, a political scientist from Western Sydney University. Uh, Firstly, I'm a political tragic, but uh, more importantly, uh, I'm a political scientist. So my PhD looked at uh, culture and identity in politics, um, and really I like to explore the way politics is played out beyond the textbook. Dr Marks told me that even if you don't live in New South Wales, it's worth keeping an eye on this election outcome because it may end up telling us a lot even about how some global political themes are playing out here in Australia. Look, the outcome of the New South Wales election is critical because it's not just about state politics. Um, Increasingly, the Australian electoral cycles federally and at the state level are subject to changes in political uh, dynamics internationally. So we're seeing the erosion of centrist politics around the world. The, you know, the obvious signs of that are things like Brexit and, and the rise of, of Trump in the US. Uh, that even affects humble New South Wales because issues that, that used to be surefire election winners, like going out, building a lot of infrastructure, would get a government over the line, uh, are no longer sure bets. And it means that, that other issues that would normally be a blip uh, in, in terms of polling can become a vault. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in New South Wales. In what way? Look, New South Wales is an interesting case because, you know, you have a government that essentially has probably got about $80 billion worth of infrastructure projects on their books. I'm sure they haven't delivered a lot of them yet, um, but we are seeing some signs of this being, um, without question, a government that is wants to be known for doing. Um, plenty of, of uh, state-level politicians have made promises about rail lines and infrastructure. These guys are, are dead set on delivering. What they haven't done... Uh, what they haven't done, you know, I guess, to support that is tell the story of how these things will benefit people. And that's been the gap that Labor has really squeezed into. And um, they've actually used the infrastructure story, which is usually a positive, and turned it into a negative. So, you know, Labor's message in New South Wales, which is uh, schools and hospitals before stadiums, actually really re- resonates because it's um, cutting through that big spend and it's breaking the traditional uh, rules of politics. We'll come back to stadiums in a minute um, because that's been an issue that's come up again and again. But just to sort of get the lay of the land, we've got the Legislative Assembly, the lower house in New South Wales. It's 93 seats. So to have a majority, a party needs 47 seats. Mm -hmm. Currently, the Coalition has 51. Labor has 34. The Greens have three. Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party has one. We've got three independents Mm -hmm. and one that's currently vacant. So... Looking for a majority at 47 seats, do you think that there's a chance that we could be looking at a minority government? Yeah, I think that's the most likely outcome. I, I do think, you know, you'll see a, a minority coalition government returned, but the really interesting play is what happens in the upper house. So, you know, you currently uh, the coalition have to deal with 
two to three independents or uh, minor parties to get stuff over the line. I think we'll, what we'll see in the coming parliament is that, that uh, the ranks of crossbenchers will expand quite dramatically, up to seven to nine crossbenchers. So that makes negotiations pretty fraught. Uh, everyone's got to do that, um, but this is, a, is really going to be um, new territory. We've got one nation returning to the fold. Mark Latham, their number one uh, uh, ticket holder in the upper house, will get in. Um, but potentially they'll get two uh, seats in the upper house. You'll have an emboldened Shooters and Fishers um, party. The Greens are suffering a little bit due to internal frictions, so it'll be interesting to see how their vote, uh, I think it will drop, um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see the makeup of that. And you'll have the Christian Democrats, so and plus actually the Australian Conservatives too. So you really have a really broad field, and it's going to mean negotiating the passage of bills will be pretty difficult. Most likely that'll be a coalition government. Could be a Labor government at a stretch, but Labor's got to pick up about 13 seats to get a majority, so that's pretty unlikely. And so, Andy, what do you see as the biggest issues that'll shape the election outcome? Look, it's that nebulous question about uh, livability, which is often played out in in the sort of catchphrase, uh, cost of living, that will, to a large extent, determine how things go. Again, you know, this is an election campaign and, if you like, a parliamentary period where the traditional rules of politics are being uh, rewritten. So um, the idea that uh, this infrastructure investment will deliver better outcomes and trickle-down outcomes for all hasn't really come to play in the minds of the electorate. Um, We've had wage stagnation. A lot of things that are really beyond the control of the state government have come into play. We've got pushback against density um, and what many consider to be overdevelopment. Um, we've got pushback on you know, project by project basis. I'm thinking of the Sydney Light Rail and West Connects and other forms of um, really disruptive, I guess, construction and development uh, processes. So the water's been muddied, and and they're the issues that are playing out. I do think we'll see some surprises thrown up. I I think this election will will be uh, the majority sort of decided in rural areas. So um, you know, it's it's really what uh, plays out beyond Sydney that might uh, turn out to have the biggest impact. And that's a whole other different set of issues. So let's just talk about those rural seats. What do you see as significant and playing out there? Look, I think uh, the rural electorates really are going to reflect the fact that the National Party's in a, uh, what you would uh, delicately call a rebuilding phase, that federally and at the state level to a lesser extent, they've gone through some internal uh, disruptions. So... That means that they're more exposed to challenges from groups like the shooters, farms and fishers, issues like the fish kill um, and and other factors related to the protracted drought um, and water security and so forth are really going to come to the fore. So seats that ordinarily the National Party would hold are going to come back into play. Um, Certainly Monaro, which is held by the uh, leader John Barillaro on 2.5%, is uh, high risk of being, being lost. Uh, Murray, which um, as a result of a by-election is held now by Austin Evans by only 3.3%, is likely to go. Um, that's Adrian Pickley's old seat, and Adrian Pickley held that seat on nearly 16%. So they've really suffered a, you know, quite a substantial erosion in their popular vote, uh, primary vote, sorry. The, the other seats that um, ordinarily wouldn't even be mentioned, seats like Barwon, which is really it's an enormous seat. It's, I think Anthony Green described it as bigger than Germany in terms of its spatial area. That's a seat that, you know, with a margin in excess of 15%. That's actually in play. So a really strong challenge is being mounted by, by uh, the smaller parties. One Nation 
and Shooters Farms and Fishers, if you believe the stories, uh, have done a deal not to contest those seats against each other. So really, you'll see some consolidated push on the nationals in, in plenty of regional electorates. Um, you'll you'll see, uh, I think, a very um, decisive set of outcomes um, play out in those areas beyond Greater Sydney. Let's talk a second about East Hills, uh, you know, the most marginal New South Wales seat. I've got the map here of East Hills. I can see it takes in the Bankstown Aerodrome, places like Mill Perra, Panania, East Hills, Picnic Point, Reesby Heights, Padstow, mm-hmm. um, Condal Park. Mm-hmm. So it's being talked up as the most marginal seat in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. What's significant? What's going on in this place? Look, East Hills should be easy to predict, but it's not. It's incredibly fraught. You would say that on a margin of 0.4%, uh, that would be a you know, dead cert pickup for the, the Labor Party. Um, but it's got history. And the other factor, the overarching factor here, is that it's an incredibly diverse seat in terms of income, in terms of cultural background, um, and in terms of every other measure you can think of. I think that um, it's a classic uh, example of the shift that's happening between uh, the inner west and what you would traditionally call western Sydney. So the borders that spatially kind of separated those areas are shifting as well. So, um, yeah, look, it's going to be a very interesting outcome. We've got Wendy Lindsay uh, for the Liberals taking up from Glenn Brooks, who retired. Um, And I'm thinking that um, Cameron Murphy uh, for Labor uh, ran an incredibly strong campaign last time, but um, suffered at the hands of some controversy around uh, the last poll. So... Labor have long saw this as, as a seat that is, is should really be theirs and they'll be camp- campaigning pretty heavily. But it's ironically one of the most difficult to predict. On paper, you'd say it would go to Labor, but um, it is representative of big shifts in sentiment. Um, I think as well, you know, this is a seat like if you transpose it to the federal level and looked at seats in proximate areas like Reed or Banks, they're seats that certainly will be hotly contested federally because of those same shifts, shifts in income levels, shifts in uh, the conservative and uh, smaller liberal um, dissipation across the electorates. So they're areas of contest, not just electorally, but culturally. And some of those seats that you just mentioned, um, you know, we had some interesting results in the same-sex marriage postal survey mm. last year, some, um, some strong no votes in some of those areas. Mm. On the other hand, we do know that the same-sex postal survey in general encouraged a lot of young people to sign up and mm. we'll have in this election a lot of young people across the state voting mm. for the first time. Mm. Do you think that that youth vote will be significant in any way? The marriage plebiscite was an interesting precursor to what we're going to see electorally. It did throw up a lot of surprises um, in that it was very representative of a, of a discord between conservatism and uh, more progressive attitudes. And I think... Uh, that was mainly confined to what you might call the sort of central area of Western Sydney. The outer Western Sydney electorates actually voted quite progressively and resoundingly in favour of the plebiscite. It did encourage uh, a strong contingent you know, of, of the youth um, voters to, to sign on and, and register. Um, I'm not sensing there's a lot of engagement, though, and, and a similar level of engagement uh, with the state political scene as there was on an issues-based agenda. So I don't think the dynamics will be played out as, as dramatically. Um, yes, the youth register will come into play on issues like environment. Certainly um, the nighttime economy for some more towards the inner west will be an issue, but I don't think it'll be uh, sufficient to, to cause um, you know, major trends one way or the other. Single issue stuff really is the stuff that draws the youth vote out.
So Labor is also looking to pick up some seats in Western Sydney, places like Penrith, um, Seven Hills. And what do you see as the main issues in Western Sydney? Western Sydney is really one that plays into that infrastructure story. Uh, again, you know, everyone is well aware of the the Squinters parable, which is the fact that you know nigh on two hundred thousand residents of Western Sydney have to drive facing into the sun every day uh, from west to east for um, for employment, uh, taking them out of their regions quite substantially. So the issue of infrastructure for them is less one about the commute, but more one about addressing the time gap and the time that, that, that is taken out of their um, engagement with their family and their community. So Penrith's really writ large in that degree. Stuart Ayres, you know, as Minister for Western Sydney and a high-profile um, member of Cabinet, ordinarily would be pretty safe on 6.4%. He's going to be subject to substantial challenge by Karen McEwen for Labor. I think that... Uh, he's, he's seen as emblematic of um, things like the stadiums issue where uh, the government's really been accused of being wasteful in terms of infrastructure spend um, with the stadiums package and Stuart Ayres fronted all of that stuff up. So he's exposed to some risk there. There's the issue of the M4 toll, issues that play out really across all of the uh, major urban centres of the country. Um, so he should be okay, should scrape over the line, but uh, he will be subject to challenge. Other seats like Granville may buck the trend in the sense that you have uh, the Liberals are running Tony Isser again, and he's someone with very strong connections uh, into the community. And Julia Finn, really, uh, the, for Labor, uh, has faced some, some challenges through her period, and on 2.1%, she's probably not entirely safe. Mark Taylor for the Libs in Seven Hills on, on uh, just over 8% uh, will be exposed to some challenge uh, from Durga Rowan for Labor. So some seats will throw up surprises. There's two other seats for the Libs as well that um, ordinarily wouldn't be subject to challenge, but in Camden and Wallandilly, you have retiring politicians in Chris Patterson and Jai Roll um, and the... Uh, new candidates for, for the Libs in those seats are really an unknown quantity. Plus, you have a lot of new people signing onto the roll. There's 20,000 new residents in the electorate of Camden who we don't know which way they vote. So, interesting times. You've mentioned the uh, stadiums issue a couple of times. Just catch us up on that. For our listeners who may not necessarily be in New South Wales or following the news, what is the stadiums issue? Look, the stadiums issue for New South Wales voters is one they can't really ignore. And it's it's about uh, the, the state government wanting to uh, demolish two major stadiums in Sydney, one at the Olympic Park Stadium and the other is uh, the Sydney Football Stadium, otherwise known as the Alliance Stadium in uh, Moore Park in Sydney. Both of those stadiums are less than uh, 30 years old or thereabouts and the government was suggesting that to compete for cultural and major events with, with the other states, they needed to upgrade those facilities and the existing ones would be on repair. So a proposal in excess of a billion came in to demolish and rebuild both. And for some reason, for some reason, uh, the significance of, of that um, or the symbolism of that didn't bode well uh, for, for the Libs in the electorate. People saw it as excessive. It was picked up upon by people uh, in the media who um, really s- suggested that it was a bridge too far in terms of spending when you've got hospitals um, with... Um, emergency department waiting blowouts and you've got schools and other issues to address so it became emblematic of of what was considered wastefulness in government Um, so and really again this was a case of the government not 
putting the right narrative forward to explain the spend in the sense of uh, the way it would benefit the electorate, and they suffered for it. The issue appeared to have gone away uh, as it was resolved late last year with them instead resolving to only rebuild the Moore Park Stadium and refurbish the Olympic Stadium. But it's been brought back on the agenda now with uh, the Labor leader Michael Daly taking on Alan Jones um, about the issue um, and really suggesting that um, the government hasn't learnt from... from uh, the controversy. Yes, we had Michael Daly uh, this week telling Alan Jones that he was going to sack the uh, the SCG Trust, mm. I believe, mm. of which um, you know Alan Jones is involved. So, do you think Michael Daly has started to make a mark? Until now, I think most people wouldn't have even known who he was. That's Michael Daly's biggest challenge. So it's the recognition factor. And again, just returning briefly to the youth vote, he suffers from very very poor levels of recognition among younger voters. I think that. Um, he needed an issue to take on as his own and the stadium's issue you know it seems to be emerging as one that he wants to to run with uh, and the response on social media was quite powerful we've seen what happens when people uh, in effect toe the line with figures like jones um, even malcolm turnbull a figure that a conservative um, uh, figure like uh, jones would typically support suffered at the hands of, of that so look it was quite a gamble and i think i suggest it was a ca- calculated gamble on Daly's part, and uh, he's received some good airtime on the back of it. And again, it returns the campaign narrative to that one about uh, infrastructure, um, and it it really um, lets Daly take the running. Who and Daly was a figure that was subject over the last couple of weeks to accusations about his uh, dealings as a Randwick councillor um, 15 years ago, um, which was surprising too. It was surprising to see the, the coalition take that line. Um, they have a positive story to tell the coalition. They have a budget in surplus, they've got low trending unemployment, and they've got record infrastructure investment. Yet they wanted to focus on somebody's uh, time as a councillor. I, I, it's, it's, it seems to, again, uh, indicate that um, they struggle to translate their good, their good outcomes into good news. And that's, that's a big theme of this campaign. So let's just talk about Gladys Berejiklian as Premier. What do you think her legacy and her record and her performance um, has been like? Look, nobody's waiting with baseball bats to vote this government out. You know, it's not a government that has fired up the electorate to the extent that they want to punish them at the, at the polling booth. And that's to a large extent down to a figure like Gladys Berejiklian. She had one of the hardest portfolios in transport. She managed to bring in the Opal Card reforms and she managed to um, really carry through the government's message in what's arguably the most challenging portfolio in the Cabinet. Uh, Taking the reins on as Premier from Mike Baird, an incredibly popular figure, uh, was a challenge too. Again, um, Berejiklian really set herself up as a hard worker. She's not a politician that um, goes in for, I guess, the media grabs or or the kind of one-liners. She's really one that set herself up as, as a hard-working policy-driven Premier. She's brought in measures like uh, the Greater Sydney Commission and she's reformed uh, the way that Sydney looks at planning and orientates itself in terms of transport and development. She's been busy. That's usually something that gets a big tick from the electorate. But again, that work ethic has really um, not been balanced with the ability to convey messages in the cut-through and and, uh, meaningful way that the electorate expects. Again, she's really struggled with explaining how all of this good news actually benefits people on the ground. So let's talk about 
the Nats and the Greens. What do you see as the issues that they're dealing with at the moment in the lead up to the March 23 election day? Look, the Nationals and the Greens are an interesting, uh, if you like, global uh, exemplar of what's shifting in politics at that scale. So they really occupy the edges of the left-right paradigm, at least in the Australian context. Uh, And the Greens in New South Wales have always struggled between a tension between, if you like, a social ecology approach to environmentalism and then real uh, socialist strain in terms of economic policy. And they've never managed to reconcile those those, uh, dynamics in the New South Wales uh, area at least. So they're starting to bubble over. And I think... um, once they are able to consolidate that, that, that tension, they'll actually, you know, restore uh, their, their vote. But they're going to suffer, I think, and they may even lose um, some considerable ground in, in both houses in this election. But that's a process they had to go through. The Nationals, again, have had their own difficulties. There are infiltra- infiltrations from the uh, extreme right that um, they uh, had to put down. And I think as well the uh, federal impact of, of figures like Barnaby Joyce... Um, have really had a negative uh, impact at the state level in terms of their traction. Both parties are going through that rebuilding phase, a necessary phase, but it's an unfortunate timing for them that's occurring at this point in the election cycle. And how big a role, if any, do you think that federal issues will have in the outcome of this New South Wales election? The federal backdrop is interesting. I mean, a lot of the, the anger was, was vented at the Victorian state election when we saw a swing of in excess of 5% back to Labor. I think that, of course, Wentworth famously at the federal level was an opportunity for voters to, to vent their anger. To a lesser extent in Wagga Wagga at the by-election at the state level, we saw some of that too. It will be a factor. I don't think it'll be as decisive as it may have been were the events of the the leadership uh, change closer to the election. Anyone who says that um, the state Liberal uh, Party wouldn't have wanted the feds to go first to the polls would be lying. And, you you know, you're not seeing any federal politicians traipsing around with state uh, Liberal or coalition figures during the campaign. So it will, it'll be a factor. But the heat's gone out of that a little bit. Again, that that view of uh, centrist politics being, I guess, subject to challenge will will probably play a bigger role. And we had Anthony Green from the ABC saying on his blog that he's abandoned his uh, election calculator for this particular election because unlike Victoria, where you'll get this statewide swing, mm. he's saying that in New South Wales it's really going to come down to a seat-by-seat uh, analysis and a seat-by-seat uh, wins. Mm. So it seems to me that this New South Wales election is a tough one to call. Yeah, I almost found myself going to the bookies the other day uh, simply because it, it is incredibly um, complex and fraught. It is a seat-by-seat proposition. And I think that um, if we look for uniform swings, they're never reliable right? in, in uh, any election, but more so in this one simply because the issues are so confined on a region-to-region basis. Again, I do think it's one that will be decided in rural electorates predominantly, um, but you'll see some surprises thrown up in Greater Sydney as well. The real challenge for them at the state level for a minority uh, coalition government would be that crossbench of figures like Latham and figures that um, may seek to horse trade on on pieces of legislation. Um, Certainly, I think uh, you've, you know, at the federal level, we saw figures like Brian Harradine do that exceptionally well. It's surprising what one crossbencher can do. Andy Marks, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been great fun for a political tragic. Thank you. 
Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Dr. Andy Marks. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. You can see a full list of audio credits on our website at theconversation.com. Chat to you soon.